0: Om Gianati Mirandasia Gian and the Nasalakaya Chaksoorun militum yena, Si smicy gravena maha. See Tanyamano, wisdom, stop itam yena bhootale, one day, Siguro, siuta parakamalam Sigurun Vaisnavam star, Siro Pamsagrajatam, Sahagana Rakunatan Vitam, Tamsa Jeevam, Savadutam, Parijana Sahitam, Krishna Chaitan Devam. Siradha sāhāga Sahaganalita, sīvīsakambhitaṁ ścā. Namo bhakti vinodāyā satchirānanda nāmīne rupa now much in Tamani, Krishna's Chaitana Rasavigraha, Purna Shuttoni Temucto, Vinatvan, Namino, Sigore Vaisnab, Guru Paramparaki Jai, Si Kurun Ki Jai, Sigurde Ki Jai. Oh, Pramande
1: Haribo. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, let's see, Govinda Mohini showed up and Sarada also Jai. Welcome. So today, I'm, I have a, a bit kind of an ambitious goal. I'm going to try to go through five of these nama Aparads. Uh, we went through, let's see, I guess the three first chapters and the first nama Aparad in the previous classes. And um, yeah, today, let's see how I can do for on the five. And uh, knowing how I get stuck on points and stuff, it's probably not going to happen, but uh, we'll get through them eventually, I would say hopefully. So chapter five, which is, of course, the second uh, Namaparad is worshipping the demigods as independent of Krishna, or sometimes it's also translated as thinking that the name of, of Krishna is equal to the name of the demigods. And uh, when I started doing the research on this um, particular chapter, I really tried like thinking about like what is it that these demigods represent because like in the west of course we're totally out of the shram system we, we don't live in a, uh, an, a more ancient culture that has this idea of demigods or these kind of like cosmic uh, managers what to speak of you know we don't even have that like say like our our European tradition comes from the Greeks, and they had this whole pantheon of of demigods and this same idea as the Vedic system. So we don't even have that anymore. What to speak of the the Vedic uh, pantheon of gods. And so for us, this idea that we shouldn't worship the demigods as independent of Krishna is pretty far removed as Westerners. Well, not all of us are Westerners, but for us, for the ones that are. know it's like well that's that's like a no-brainer we you know it's kind of easy for us to think oh of course krishna is god you just like we have no it's like a clean slate like shamananda quoted a really nice thing what um in one of his classes what bhaktisiddhanta saraswati had said to sadhananda that it's actually because sadhananda was like saying oh you know i'm so fortunate that i don't have this some scar from my earlier life of of this like sanata and dharma and and bhaktis and said, you're lucky like you have a clean slate so there's definitely something to that in this this nama apparatus. that we uh, it's very easy for us if we can come to the level of accepting that that krishna is god then it's very easy to be like well of course krishna is the highest just like that, the logic kind of makes sense but imagine if you're born into the uh, Hindu system or the Varnashram Dharma system and the whole basis of the Varnashram Dharma system is that the de- demigod worship is like an integral part of the society and it like gradually trains you to, to kind of like decentralize your, your ego so that you're always showing gratitude and you're always uh, in this venerable, ven- venerable mood towards your environment and others. And so then what I came to is like, well, what are the Devatas really? So if they are these like cosmic, ex, cosmic managers or expressions of, of everything that happens, of course, the Hindu idea is that there's consciousness behind everything. So nothing can really happen without consciousness. So in our our context, you could really say that the, what the principle is, is that... Um, if we have this faith that's very uh, prevalent in science, in fact, the, science, sci- the scientific me- method is based on this idea. If we believe that nature is completely independent and is like this closed system that is just like a clock that, uh, that just runs on its own and that God, if he or she or whatever it is even exists, is completely removed from it because we have this closed system that works on its own. Uh, that is basically, you could say, the same mentality as thinking that the demigods are independent of Krishna. That this, what we see, functions on its own. And um, if you decide to get all of your information about life and the world and whatnot um, from the through your senses, if you just only trust your senses. Um, it's actually very easy to think like this, and this is this is like it's easy to think that we are the the world is independent, and it's all based on these laws, these kind of like, kind of like um impersonal laws that just happen automatically and and nobody's deciding how it goes, whatever. And so this is exactly what happened, basically when the Renaissance or like when the uh, middle Ages turned into. The new age so the modern age that's exactly what happened the philosophers there's this guy called francis bacon who who kind of made the break breakthrough of realizing we don't have to trust in this past uh um tradition or this like scholastic tradition or or the revelation to understand nature all we have to do is he had the slogan something like instead of studying the what was it the book of wisdoms or books of wisdom study the book of nature so you just you perceive nature and you you create theories based on that and nature will speak to you on its own and that in a lot of ways that that has of course brought like amazing advancements that that shift changed from trusting uh, on revelation and uh, like tradition, basically the um, ancient Greek tradition, like Aristotle and stuff. Instead of focusing on tradition and like kind of like this presumptive authority, they said no. The the information has to come directly from our environment through our senses and our intelligence. And it sounds so obvious to us, but it was extremely radical at that time in the 16th century. And um, like i was saying that that it has created amazing advancements in technology and like understanding of the natural world and stuff but from our point of view um like it's just if you look at the world in this like microcosmic way you only focus on what's right in front of you okay it it seems like in the short term to make sense yes this is actually a better way of getting information and knowledge about the world and about ourselves and stuff but if if you take it to the massive like cosmic scale as the hindus and, and like deep spiritualists see the see existence whatever happens right now is just like a blink of a blink of a blink of a blink of an eye it's like basically one exhalation of mahavishnu to you know Guru Mach, my guramach says to it's like a so-called poetic way of talking about it that like god breathes out this existence and there's like this inherent gyan, gyan shakti or gyan in in God. And so whatever he breathes out becomes a system that functions perfectly, basically, for what it's meant to be. And so the scientists, they like flow out with that breath and they're like, oh, check it out, check it out. I'm checking out all these details here and it, it's all working on its own. You don't need God. You don't need God yet they are actually coming out as the speck of dust in the breathing of God. So like it really, you could say it comes down to the um, the angle of vision, whether you believe in the fact that we are completely independent of any supernatural, you know, boogeyman or whatever. The fact is that like, and it's easier to think like that in with Christianity in some ways, at least mainstream Christianity, because in Christianity, um, God is totally separated from, ex- from the material existence. Like Basically, they say that the original sin or the, the state that we are in the world is the complete uh, absence of God. Evil is basically nothing but the absence of God. So the idea is that in this world, there's absolutely nothing, has nothing to do with God in that way. Whereas the panentheistic idea of, of Gaudiya Vaishnavism and mo- much of Hinduism is that everything is completely in- intertwined with God. Yet he's like he's not here at the same time, and he is like it says in the Gita. So, So it's easy if you only trust your senses to think, yes, actually the demigods or the the material world is completely independent of any kind of transcendent idea that we somehow require for these things to happen. We were just ignorant before we tried explaining the world in that way through some metaphysical, you know, fancy footwork. But now we... You know came out of that dogmatic slumber and now we look at the world as it is, and we can see it's just natural laws that function in a closed system. And, of course, what happened to Christianity they went from, you know, like even uh, Newton and and these guys Copernicus were deeply religious people but they had this idea that they were going to clean up Christianity from all the superstition. And so it went from that kind of science reason based Christianity to deism, where this idea is that God is just a clockmaker and he got the world going and then he took off. And then from deism, it went to agnosticism. It's like, well, actually, how can we know that there is some God who doesn't have anything to do with this world? And then, of course, from agnosticism, it's really easy to slide to atheism. And so that really, I think, is at the heart of this namaparad, that we have the sense of being independent from God and we can choose to be with God if we want to, but we don't have to. from the Hindu perspective, all that is just complete illusion. It's like an illusory perception of what reality is. And so if you think you're independent, you will not have the proper sambandagyan towards God. And at least theoretically, we should understand this point. Although of course, most of us, since we're still like pretty deeply conditioned by the material influence, we still act in the world, even as devotees, as if we were independent. And but theoretically, at least we should remind ourselves: no, that is not true. You know, one of the limbs of Saranagati is that that Krishna is your maintainer. And the second one of them is that he's your protector. And so that's really, I think, what it comes comes down to, in my opinion, this, this Nama Parad. Um, let's see here. Um, yeah, I guess really what it boils down to is, and I've repeated this, said this before, but I, I so much like it, I'm just going to repeat it in this uh, context as well. That really the idea comes down to the fact that reality is a person. That's like the the Bharivya Sutra of of Gaudiya Vaishnavism in some ways, at least if you add that, and that person is Krishna, or the highest, highest, you know, uh, aspect of that person is is Braj Krishna, and so that that like key sutra to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, if you actually believe that reality is one person that manifests himself in this amazing, like infinite, varied ways, then you'll never think that, that the demigods are independent. I mean, how could they be? Demigods are just like these tiny little parts of that amazing reality that is a person. So I think that's really the the remedy or the like antidote for the kind of idea that we're independent is that reality is a person and we're tiny particles of that person and to me i mean for a lot of people who are not religious that thought is like awful it's like i don't want to be part of anybody else i myself right but for devotees since we know who we have some information and some little realization of who that person is it's a wonderful idea that You know, thank God we're not holding the world on our shoulders, right? And of course, what flows from that same idea that that the demigods are separate from Krishna or that the material world is separate from Krishna is that you start thinking that Krishna Nam and Krishna Himself are not the same person or not the same thing, that they're not identical. And um, that, like, I think it was mentioned. I, I think I did mention it in the Namabhas chapter, that that is really a very detrimental idea to shudha, chanting the Shudhanam, because the whole basis of that practice of Shudhanam is that you directly contact Svarup Shakti through your chanting, if you can chant Shudanam, or you try to do that, which is this like direct like hotline to Krishna, you know? And so, if you think that actually it's just some material sound, but it does something to your brain that makes you more more like, uh, what's the word, susceptible to the cosmic mind or some kind of interpretation like that, which we'll be talking about later on, then you actually materialize the name, which from what we believe is that the name is pure Sudhasattva. And, and the, the, like the lifeline directly to Krishna, because Krishna and his Shaktis are, especially the Svarupa Shakti, are identical in, in many ways you could say. Well, one and different, but uh, you could say also identical. Um, but then it's important also to point out that although we believe this way, then we, we don't disrespect the devatas uh, Because they have a function in the person, you know, the reality that is that person. And that the devatas are also devotees, they are like karma mishra devotees, they have some karmic propensities mixed into their devotion, but they are overall their devotees. And so we should, you know, have, you know, the highest regard for the fact that they are serving Bhagavan in their prescribed duty. And so in this section, Bhakti because he, ta- he talks a lot about the Varnashram system and how if you're, you're a devotee in the Varnashram system, what do you do? Because so much of it is has to do with uh, the demigod worship. And so he says the best way to deal with that is that you offer, after you've offered your boga to Bhagavan, Sri, Sri Krishna, after that, you offer that boga to the dem- and I mean the Mahabrusha to the demigods, and that's that's basically Bhakti Vinod is saying that's all you need to do as a devotee in the Varnashram system. You just you offer your mahaprasad to the dev- devatas and, and your guru. And then the way Bhakti Vinod structured this uh, these chapters about the different namaparads is that he always um, suggests a remedy in the end. And for this one, he says that, that the mind should be concentrated on understanding the true position of Krishna, which is done through the constant chanting of Harinam and, and through having the right Sambana-gyan. So it's the combination of the right sambana and then constant chanting. And then your heart will get purified so that you can actually realize that reality is a person named Krishna. So that was that one about the demigods. And then the next chapter is uh, a big one. It's the disrespecting the guru, and I mean it's it's obvious to understand. It's obvious like why this one would be a very grave aparad in terms of nama aparad, because if you think about the principle of the guru, like what is the guru? Is it just some social position like the president or you know the secretary of state? And then there's the guru you know you could say in the varna shram system or the the social system of of the vedic uh, culture the guru in some ways there's so many positions of guru all kinds of kula guru like varna shram guru or ka- all kinds of different gurus but of course what we're talking about here since it's in the context of Sudhanam, Sudhanam is the sad guru or the the, the ultimate guru from our point of view the the Connection between us and the, the Svarog Shakti that is coming down because of as like Krishna's mercy, and so basically the principle is the Guru is you could say Krishna's well wishing towards us that comes in this kind of like tailored or like customized way uh, when we've been circling in the samsara for like for an eternity that's a long time so we've been circling circling and just trying to enjoy trying to enjoy and then finally somehow out of great luck out of bhakti sokrate we come to the point where we just get so exhausted with the game that we can't go on anymore we get completely just like we we can't continue and then out of that frustration and helplessness comes this sincere earnest plea to, to have help from the higher quarter, as March would say and that's that's when the guru steps in, in people's lives. I don't know if you've had that experience I, I had that experience very strongly it was like at the height of my uh, my uh, helplessness and anxiety and hopelessness really, that, that's when I contacted uh, that the Gaudiya Vaishnava Guru Parampara and that's there's so many nice stories like that I love hearing those stories like Archon Siddhi's um, that interview series there's so many wonderful examples and it really kind of hits home or it drives the point home when Archon Siddhi like brings all these uh, experiences together in the way of interviewing many devotees and then you start seeing the pattern like oh my god it's one after another, it's a very, very similar circumstance that happens. And um, so then the guru is like the answer to our desperate crying for for release or for some kind of actual purpose in this meaningless uh, cycle of samsara. And then to uh, disrespect that, you can see why krishna would be kind of pissed off about that <laughs> like first you're like oh my god okay so well, let me, okay gurumaj my guru gives that example of a guy who's fallen in the well and then he's crying help you know crying and nobody's around and he's obviously you can't get out by your own devices so that's basically the situation when we finally realize that we really desperately need guidance we need a guru and so the guy is screaming in the well And what's the mood of that person? It's just this complete helplessness and complete surrender to grace, right? And so that's really, I would say, that is the mood that you have to have if you want to avoid this disrespecting the guru uh, attitude. Because where does that disrespecting come from? It comes from ignorance and anarthas of thinking yourself to somehow be able to um do better than the guru or have a better vision of something i mean well anyway we'll talk a little bit more about the the more relative side of the guru later on but but that's really if you think about it if you're in at the bottom of the well and you're screaming for your life and of course you're not going to be thinking about any kind of critical things about others because you're completely preoccupied with your predicament And so I would say that is the best
2: mood against this offense. Um, But then of course, it's not that we shouldn't uh, on some level discriminate
1: because they're like, oh, okay. For example, so the guy is screaming in the well, right? And then so all of a sudden, a head pops up in the, the you know circle that the guy sees from the bottom of the well, and you know some you know good good Samaritan is there and says you know what can I do? I, uh, let's let's get you out of there. And you're like wow, and you immediately says yes, let's do it. And the guy throws down a rope, and you start going up, and oh my God, I'm so you know, <laughs> infinitely grateful to you. And then the guy's like okay. your hand reach out your hand and then you reach your your hand and he pulls out your watch and throws you back down in the well so so the guy saw your watch when you were at the bottom of the well and that was his motivation but he acted like a guru and you trusted him right so bhaktivinoda like cautions against like before you um Oh, and then you, of course you're at the bottom of the well, and your leg is broken now. Which means, first of all, you don't trust those people anymore who come and ask and tell you they're going to help you. And second of all, it's it's a little hard to try to you know scale the scale the well wall when your legs broken. So you're damaged from that. So then the, Bhaktivinoda says you have to examine the guru before you you commit to the relationship. And he says this really funny thing. He kind of says like. Uh, one should carefully examine the guru before, you know, taking diksha, just like one would examine a material object. I guess the indication is before buying something, you like look at it like this, and that's of course a little like tricky area because you could do that out of wrong motivations of being just like really suspicious because of your your material covering. But the point is like be level-headed, but also just be
2: kind of like you know, be honest about what you see. And then, so then what do you do when you try
1: to figure out who's a real guru? So, of course, you like try to think about the characteristics. What does the scripture say? And one of the first things, in fact, I think it's the first thing that the Gaudiya scripture says that the guru should have comprehensive scriptural knowledge of what bhakti is. And he's, or she is supposed to be able to explain Uh, like dispel people's doubts. So this kind of like deep realization about the scriptures and also just theoretical knowledge of the scriptures is is the the main thing. And um, of course, then as a side effect, there should be this interest in material affairs and this intense interest in devotional things, anything related to bhakti. So that alone, like just don't focus on basically on the external things like, are you a good singer or are you a good speaker even? Like, do you know the scriptures comprehensively? And are you actually disinterested in material life? And do you have this deep, deep interest in spiritual affairs? And that that I think alone will say enough. Also Bhakti Vinod emphasizes that that you you can't think of the guru as an ordinary person, but this is like a like a especially empowered person who's empowered by Krishna for this specific task of, of giving shelter to certain jivas that, that recognize him or her as, as a guru, as a, like an ambassador from the other side. And Bhaktivinoda says that we should always serve the guru with great devotion and always keep in mind that, uh, that she has basically saved us from the well. And that's the right attitude to avoid this uh, of disrespecting the guru but then at the same time sometimes it happens that your guru gets influenced by uh karma and and gets attracted by uh wealth and and the opposite sex or the same sex depending on their orientation or uh, like the uh, thirst for power and influence pratishtha and then if due to bad association that happens and they fall down or they they change their philosophical ideas about what the ultimate truth is, then you can disregard the guru's instructions. That's that's really like the only time you can totally disregard the guru's instructions and reject the guru. And then it's obviously not an apparat
2: right if that if the guru falls down. But uh, Yeah, yeah, I think that's as simple as that. And then Bhakti Vinod, uh he
1: also describes how we should be reverential towards the guru. And he, this is a direct quote, one should not step on the guru's bed and seat, shoes, vehicle, the water that washes his feet, or his shadow. <laughs> and here, my Guru March, at least, uh, is he kind of downplays this kind of Aishwarya, like that thing about not stepping on the guru's shadow. I think that's, that's uh, the India in Indian culture, it's a much more grave offense than in the West. I don't think anybody in the West would even think about something like that. But here, yeah, Guru much definitely, uh, when I joined, he emphasized this idea of like a, that he wants to have a smaller halo as a guru, which means that that like intense. Emphasis on the Aishvarya side of the guru. He did not find that to be useful at this time in the West. Like it all comes down to what's useful for the mentality of the people. Really. The, the, the core principle is how can I help this person to get more serious about their spiritual life and go to Krishna? Like the guru is a servant, right? But it the service in, in a culture that is very strongly stratified and where like authority is unquestioned, like in a lot of the Indian system from the olden days, it's very useful for the guru to take this like super aishwarya position because then he can say chant your rounds, do this, do that, and but out of good, you know, out of concern for the disciple, and the disciple will do that. Whereas in the West, if like that kind of here, it's seen as like this authoritarianism, which is automatically questioned and kind of um frowned upon and then of course migromach he's he's like he's a very intelligent person so he his assessment has been that right now that's n- not the best way to help your disciples to take on this like aishwarya position. and but that's that's a tricky thing in the west because if you're too friendly then the disciples can lose respect for you But if you're too far, (laughs) if you're too high on the seat, then they'll get like suspicious of you. And the tricky thing I think with the West is that we're always like moving around with our conceptions of what reality is. We're like in this constant state of recreation, recreating ourselves and our societies. So it's, I would imagine, extremely difficult to be a guru At this time, because you're always kind of like, like trying to figure out where people are at, what is more the most effective way of, of dealing with them. And there's so much room for this kind of disrespect, because if the guru goes a little too far in trying to reach out in this friendly way, then the disciples might lose their respect and start acting inappropriately. So I don't know. This just came to my mind when I was talking about it, that we're kind of in a very tricky situation in terms of, of the guru-disciple relationship right now in the West, because it's constantly changing. And there's this strong, uh, what's the word, um, distrust of authority in general. So I don't have any good answers, I guess, to how to avoid starting to disrespect the guru, because it's another form of disrespect if you if they are like, this very intensely Aishvarya kind of uh, guru in terms of a high seed and all this worship and stuff. When you start questioning their motives, receiving that kind of worship, that's another form of the same disrespect, whether you disrespect them by thinking that they're ordinary, whether you disrespect by thinking that they're a little too extraordinary (laughs) in other people's eyes or something. And then Bhakti goes, well, this is actually, okay, maybe this is actually the answer. I'm answering myself here. Bhakti says that one should always act in a way that pleases the guru. Quote, if one acts this way and chants the holy name, one will attain the perfection of life. This is the statement of the Vedas. So that's really, then if you're really sincere, instead of the guru trying to placate you, you go to the guru and ask, what do you want me to do? And so like if you have this kind of like um, spontaneous uh, affection for the guru, then there's kind of no question of um, the guru having to like act in a way that works for you, if you know what I mean. But, of course, it's extremely hard uh, to have that kind of spontaneous affection for the guru like when the guru stops placating you and and he is who he is or she is who she is i have extensive <laughs> experience of this myself i was just gonna share one quick thing that happened to me uh when i was a brahmachari i went to uh madhuvan we were um pioneering madhuvan and so i went there with guru march and vrindaranya my wife and wasn't wife then and so Vrindarana had started to kind of work on me because she could see that I had certain areas that I could improve on. And she always had that completely spontaneous affection for Guru March. And that's why Guru March, my Guru March has given her so much uh, uh, affection and let her get so close because she has this really spontaneous affection that I've always been extremely, I have to say, envious of. And so, so then she saw me kind of struggle and stuff, and I was doing everything right, but I was just kind of like, uh, not it was not natural for me, you could say. And those so then she kind of sat me down one day. I remember we were in the in the corral in where I forget what there. Maybe there's a corral still, I don't know. It's right in front of uh, Gorsundar's cabin. And so she sat me down, and she said, you know, your problem is that you're submissive, but you're not surrendered. And it was like an amazing moment for me. It was one of those things like, like you really kind of think that God is speaking to you through somebody else. It was the simplest thing that she said, but it kind of like put everything for me in perspective. And so then it became this mantra for me, like, oh, yeah, I'm submissive. I do everything as a duty. I do everything right. You know, oh, you know, Guru Maharaj, I bow down, I serve, you know, whatever. But it's like, it's like vaidhi Bhakti. And, and like, so how do you go from vaidhi Bhakti to Raganuga Bhakti? Of course, the, the answer is that it's this painful, gradual purification of the heart. So I got a little off track, but I, this, it was like a very significant thing for me. So I just wanted to share that. So basically, what I'm saying is like if you have that kind of spontaneous affection for the guru, it's very, very hard to, you basically can't commit this aparat. And that's, that is in some ways, is, well, not in some ways, that is the goal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism that you become completely uh, identified with the guru. And in the far end of it, of course, in the Leela, you're best friends, you're equal actually on that level. You're not like a guru disciple. You're in his or her group and you follow his or her lead. And it's like the absolute best friend you can imagine. No separation, no like, no uh, difference in terms of who worships who or whatever. And so like as sadhakas, I would say we're very gradually trying to go towards that understanding of the guru, while being very careful that we don't overstep that and then start acting too uh, freely and then commit this apparatus that we're talking about. And so for this one, Bhakti Vinod says, as a remedy, he says, if you end up offending your guru to, due to bad association and literature, to remedy it, you should immediately give up those things and approach your guru in a remorseful mood, asking for forgiveness. guru, is naturally merciful and she or he, well, Bhaktivinu didn't say that, that was my addition,
2: he will gladly forgive your offense. Yeah, so that's another aspect of the guru. They are extremely
1: merciful because they are kind of like the, the Kripa Shakti of, of Krishna coming to us. And, and so they they want us to succeed. So if we offend them, offend them, but then we are remorseful, they'll be immediately like, yeah, whatever, you know, don't worry about it. Let's move on. Let's get you to Golok. Next chapter is disrespecting the revealed scriptures. Now Bhakti starts this chapter by talking about the function of the Vedas. He first he delineates that the Vedas mean the four Vedas the Upanishads and the Purushas. Uh, and they're called, they're like described as the breathing of God. It's Al which means that they are not coming from humans. It's like this breathing, this like manifestation of, of God's cognition or something. God's mind, you could almost say. And they give perfect knowledge, uh, comprehensive perfect knowledge, especially about spiritual matters. That is the, the way that the Vedas or the revelation has been seen in the Vedic tradition, in the Sanatana Dharma conception. And then Bhaktivinoda goes on to explain the necessity of scripture. And in at this point, I want to share a video with you guys. It's a little uh,
2: attention test to prove my point. Let's see here. Okay, do you guys see it? Somebody give me a thumbs up. Do you see the screen? Yes.
1: Okay. So this won't have the audio, but it has the exclamation. Just follow the explanation and, and let's do the, you will be the guinea pigs here.
2: Oops, sorry, started too early, I'm too late. Okay, here we go. The monkey business illusion. Count how many times the player's wearing white passed the ball. The correct answer is 16 passes. Did you spot the gorilla? For people who haven't seen or heard about a video like this before, about half missed the gorilla. OK, who missed the gorilla? Let's see, you can do uh, in the chat. OK, to missed the gorilla. Anybody else? It seems like
1: Shamananda and Sakyarthi also. What about Guido or Carolina? Oh, well, Carolina missed it too. So so that's okay, Krishna. So it looks like everybody missed it. So let me go back there. I'll show you
2: where the gorilla is. You'll be surprised that you missed it. <laughs> Right, so that's pretty
1: surprising, right?
2: We don't see your screen.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry.
2: Okay, let's go back. I, it's so funny, I gotta show it to you. Okay. Okay, there you go.
1: <laughs> so, that the reason I'm showing you this video is that when Bhaktivinoda talks about the necessity for scripture, he says that the senses are extremely limited. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty good little example of how limited our senses are. We have this way of like, and it, you know, there's different ways of explaining it, but ever, evolutionary psychology or biology would say that we have to fo- have this complete focus on one thing at a time because it comes down to survival. But we miss so much because of these kind of uh, shortcomings of the, the human embodiment. And let me stop the share. And so um, then he goes on to explain you know, the, the classic four defects of the senses, the, the limitation of the senses, karnapatava, the brahma, or mistakes by the senses, vipralipsa, or bias and cheating, and pramada, or inattention. So like what happened with the gorilla one, um you could say it was the limitation of the senses and mistakes we make these obvious mistakes and so so the scriptures come from beyond our uh, provisional way of perceiving existence or reality and so they give you kind of like the bird's eye view of what reality is which we can't do ourselves because we are always stuck on the specific uh um, point of view that we see the life through these eyes that we have or the the senses that we have that we're we're completely helpless in that way in perceiving the bigger picture and we try to expand our way of perceiving through science and it's incredible what we've been able to do but from the from the Vedantic point of view or from the Gaudiya point of view that's just like a drop in a bucket that's never ever going to give us comprehensive. Uh, information of what we are and what this thing is that this crazy swirl that's like happening around us right and that's not like i'm not bashing science i'm just saying from a goria point of view science has its place as a discipline that you can achieve through the senses and the incredible capacity of the mind but that is never going to give you love of god and um yeah, I mean, we can't perceive anything beyond our senses. So, how could we ever perceive God who is completely transcendental? That's really the point that Bhaktivinoda is doing here. And uh, he's making the point just very quickly, because I'm, as I was expecting, I'm running out of time. There's three subjects of the, the scriptures, and that's the Sambanda or the, the um, kind of like the, what's the word? This like uh, theoretical framework of what this thing is. Abhideya, which is the means to, to reach the, the truth or the final goal, and then prayan or the final goal itself. And of course for us it's like sambanda is bhakti sambanda yan, abhideya is the nine limbs of bhakti and specifically chanting and then prayan is Krishna pray. And that's really what Bhakti is saying, that's what scriptures are. Scriptures are really about, although they seem to be talking about all kinds of things. And he's quite heavy about philosophies that, excuse me, go against or who posit, posit uh, that the final goal of life is something else than Shuddha Bhakti, be it karma, Gyan or yogic Siddhis and so on. And he's basically saying, if you have faith in any of these other paths as the, the final goal, then you are committing Nama Parada if you're chanting with that kind of understanding. And he specifically mentions Jaimini, who's the the who wrote the the mimamsa, what is it called the sutras? I forget now the, anyway the kind of like the uh father of the mimamsa school, and then he mentions Kapila the the atheistic version of Kapila, not the Lord's incarnation, but Kapila who came up with this yoga system and He mentions Charvaka, the atheist and the Buddhist and so on, and all just to show that that if you want Shuddha Bhakti, you have to be careful about what your framework for reality is because you're going to get a different result. And you could also add, you know, from a secular point of view that any kind of truth claim that um, believes in humans' own ability to figure out what the ultimate truth is is, no I'm all right really if you chant with that kind of conception and of course I just want to add so that doesn't come off totally sectarian and fanatical that of course we can augment our understanding of the world by science in terms of all these practical things i mean it's undeniable that we've made incredible uh, advancements in understanding uh, so much about the material world and stuff but like i said earlier the you know the fourth state of existence, which is beyond stage of, of the material states of mind. Science just, it simply can't touch that reality. Um, and of course, Bhakti, you know, takes an opportunity to, to jab, Maya Mayabad at this point, because it's uh, another form of, of the kind of thinking that kind of cancels Krishna out of the picture or like
2: believes in Kind of like the, well, anyway, yeah, that's, that's really what Mayavad does. And
1: then he mentions that the direct meaning of the Vedas is Namkirtan, and he specifically points out the Om, Omkar, and how the Om is the principle all-pervading sound in the Vedas. And in fact, the Om is actually a name of Krishna. And he says that by chanting it, uh, you, you will actually re- reach Galok. Uh, I don't know if he means that literally, that was an interesting statement, but that's what he says in Harinam Chintamini. And he also strongly makes the point that that all the Vedas proclaim that simply by chanting the name of Hari, everything will come from that. And that is like the essence of the Vedas. That's our strong, strong conviction. And then lastly, again, there's a remedy for this aparad if you... um, disrespect the the vedas or the the scriptures is that then in that case you should offer flowers and tulsi leaves to the bhagavatam or the vedas with devotion and he says that the bhagavatam is certain to give its boundless mercy if you if you have that kind of mood towards it and um, i think i will stop there yeah i think i've talked enough and uh, i didn't get to two <laughs> oh it's two yeah i am two apparats short so we gotta try to really like bust through them next week i have a lot to go through next week because of uh, i lost one of my or missed one of my classes um but um yeah that is that and uh I thank you for your attention, and if you have any questions or comments, please,
2: let's hear them. Oh, here we go. Sarada says, I heard somewhere
1: that one of the external characteristics of mukti is seeing the oneness in everything. However, in the context of seeing the demigods as separate from God, for example, is complicated for us as humans with limited senses in the marginal potency of the Lord. Does it say that with further sadhana or more namkirtan, does seeing the oneness in everything become more apparent? Uh, I can't remember any direct... That's a really good question, by the way. I don't remember any direct statements specifically about the oneness But I actually I want to dig into this because this immediately my uh, own sense is maybe Shamananda might have something in mind, but my immediate sense is that it definitely that that oneness. uh, Like, like, I really like the statement that Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati made. He said that the Krishna Lila happens on the platform of Advai Gyan or, or this like uh complete uh oneness of course for us, us it's a dynamic oneness because it's bhagavan and his shaktis that we're one with but but yeah like i would definitely say that the more we chant well okay well think about what happens to the gopis at the height of the brahmaragita you know when they are the the intensity of the separation after the Lila, like it was the consummation of everything they had ever wanted they finally ran off to the woods and Krishna was there. And then they this whole amazing like playful dance with Krishna started. And so they were like nothing could have been better for them. And then all of a sudden Krishna disappears. And so so then from that they were like cast into this intense separation that just like killed them. They they were like well they would have wanted it to kill them but they survived. It was even worse. And so, at the height of that that worst possible separation, they went so delirious that they started thinking that they were Krishna. Not that that's the teaching, but it just shows you how intense their identification was with him, that they actually started acting like Krishna and they started playing out all these lilas and stuff. And so, since that is the highest goal of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, I guess that's one scriptural uh, thing you could think about that shows that uh, that the oneness certainly like ramps up as you get more advanced. That's the best I can do.
2: <laughs> Jay. Shamana, did you have anything to add to that one? Uh, not really. Uh, just thinking of uh, what the Prabhupada said
0: there, uh, what I read a few days ago in the? Um, the constitution of ISKCON. He was saying something that the diksha is when you're kind of ready to see God in everything and everything in God or something like that.
1: <laughs> um but, but that's not yeah, like I can't think of any any scriptural statement for that. But well that's a good one though. Yes. <laughs> I don't know why I have diksha if that's the qualification,
2: but <laughs> anyway, it's a nice <laughs> statement. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, well, I guess
1: that's it for now, but uh, I thank you everybody again for coming. And next uh, Tuesday, uh, we have our last class and uh, I think I got to drop some of them out or I'll just have to go through some of them real fast because I do want to get to the end. There's some really, really juicy stuff in the end. So. Yeah, hopefully I'll see you all next week and have a great week and uh, see you soon. Haribo.
2: Jai. Sriman Gurunishta Prabhuki. Jai. Jai.